butchery, sadism, murder. A wave of depraved and corrupt horror video. Confusing fiction with reality. Doug Smart, producer, Ident Investment Films. Maybe Enid could watch my latest Frederick North submission. Wanted a woman's eye on this film. There's this actress. I've got this feeling that's Nina. Oh, my sister. You know, if someone did take her, then there's still out there. You've never been clear on exactly what you remember. You'd be surprised what the human brain can edit out when it can't handle the truth. your name, honey? Flight Officer Garrett. Ain't no women in the air corps. I'm a flight mechanic and a pilot. You're not a pilot. You're a delivery girl. <laughs> Sir, requesting permission to fire on an enemy attacker. You wouldn't even know how to fire a gun. I was being polite. Who the hell are you, Miss Garrett? What is she here for? Did you hear that? What the hell is that racket? There's something on top of it playing something on the goddamn time. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast with me, your host, Rob Daniel. And as always, it is a pleasure to welcome my co-host to the show, Mr. Rob Wallace. And as always, it's absolutely delightful to be here. Excellent. We have quite a packed show today. We will be talking about Censor, the new horror film from Prano Bailey Bond. And we will also be looking at Shadow in the Cloud, which I think could be a contender for my top 10 of the year. And Rob will also be telling us about all the wonders of Free Guy. But before we begin, on the last episode, we were talking about Jungle Cruise. And Rob, you were telling me what the ride was like, because you'd been on it as a kid. And it sounded, okay, that sounds fine. I was then talking to a friend of mine called Michael, and he reminded me that I too had been on the Jungle Cruise ride when Michael and I went to Disneyland in Paris in 2001. And I have no memory of that whatsoever, which I think shows how memorable the ride is, maybe. Well, yeah, the, it's meant to, it's, I don't know, so this might be, <laughs> it's meant to be shit. Um, it's, you do have like the Jungle Cruise guide, essentially making terrible puns and taking you through this kind of artificially curated bit of the jungle. And then I'm fairly sure you do go up on a bit of an adventure chase towards the end. But I don't have particularly strong memories of it. Yeah, me neither. To the point where I thought he was getting it confused with another ride because there was a rapids ride. And he said, no, no, we went on that as well. And then he started to describe it and was basically saying what you were saying on the episode. And it's like, oh, right, so that is the ride. And he said, yeah. And because at that time, the Disneyland that we went to didn't have a huge amount of rides, we actually went on it twice. So I've been on the Jungle Cruise ride twice and have no memory of that whatsoever. And I do remember the day to Disneyland very well because it was a lovely park. And the Magic Kingdom that you walk through at the entrance is amazing. It looks just like the Magic Kingdom from Sleeping Beauty. And the Indiana Jones cart ride was very good. I just have no memory of the Jungle Cruise ride. So, yes, that just really tickled me. So your experience of the ride was about as memorable as your experience of the film? Yes, that's right. But we will be talking about much more memorable films today. But before we get on to censor, 
just got some news about the Fright Fest Film Festival, which is coming up over the August Bank Holiday weekend. Uh, I think we've talked about Fright Fest before on the show, and we've both been to the festival before. It's a horror film festival that runs over the August Bank Holiday weekend. So this one is from Thursday the 26th of August to Monday the 30th of August. It's at the Cineworld Leicester Square in London. And yes, of course, last year it had to be a virtual festival. But one of the great things about Fright Fest is that you are watching horror films with horror fans and they tend to be very good audiences. Their etiquette is very good for watching a movie, but also they can be really, really raucous when the film is right for that. So it's just a real pleasure to go and watch a horror movie with a Fright Fest crowd. And there are some really good films coming up. Uh, So films that I'm looking forward to, there's the opening film, Demonic, which was directed by Neil Blomkamp of District 9. So he shot it in secret last year. The closing film is called The Sadness, which is a Taiwanese film about a pandemic that sends everyone mad and turns them into homicidal maniacs. Apparently it's absolutely wild. So that should be quite a good one to close on. There's the new Nicolas Cage one, Prisoners of the Ghostland, which is directed by Shion Sono. But there are loads of other films as well. It looks to be a really good festival. I've actually seen a few of the films already, but I'm embargoed until they actually show at the festival, so I can't really talk about them. But what I can say is that, yes, there are some good films that are going to be playing at this year's Fright Fest. So go to frightfest.co.uk, which is their official site, for more details on how to book and stuff. Actually, one of the things that's also playing at Fright Fest is a live audio commentary on Censor by the director. So quite fitting that we are now going to talk about Censor. So anyone who has listened to the podcast knows that I like my horror films and also that I am a child of the 80s. And Censor is about the video nasties scare in the early 80s to some extent. So there are many things that I'm going to talk about with the film, but I really want to know what you think of it, Rob, as someone who was born well after that period. So no, just to make sure I understand the concept, there was a period of time where you couldn't just get absolutely anything you wanted to watch. Yeah, no, it's mad, isn't it? There was a period of time where not only could you just get anything you absolutely wanted to watch, but sometimes it was impossible because the BBFC said, no, we've seen this and you can't see this at all. And even if you try to get it from another country, you could go to prison for that. So yes, that was a really, really interesting time to be a horror fan. Also, as you're not as immersed in horror as I am, I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Actually, I saw a description of this film or a synopsis of this film on the Prince Charles newsletter that I actually think is a bit better than what's on the IMDb. So I'm going to read that out. The story takes us back to the 80s, during the height of the video nasty's moral panic, and sees Neam Algar play Enid, a dedicated British movie censor who chops out all the grotesque and gory scenes from horror movies. Her mission is to prevent such crimes actually taking place in society by copycats influenced by these images from these types of movies. When a sleazy producer asks her to have a look at his latest film, Enid is shocked to discover a clue that is a link to her sister's mysterious disappearance when they were children, leading her down a path of reality versus fiction. Yeah. Good overview of the film. So, without further ado, what did you think of Censor? I really liked it. I'm a a real fan of this kind of horror. I mean, it reminded me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, of something like Barbarian Sound Studio, where it really explores the potential of cinema as a medium like you know it basically dissects what a horror film does 
and how they operate. So yeah, I, I guess it's always the danger with a film like this. You're going to become too self-aware. You're going to become coy. And one thing I, I, I really did like about it is it's not a straight cut, oh, they were idiots for banning video nasties, or on the complete other side, oh, video nasties, of course. It's a film that does have a degree of ambivalence, if, even if only subtextual that I really liked. Because obviously the, uh, the lead character, Enid, played by uh, Neve Algar, I think I'm guessing is how her name's pronounced, is a censor. And essentially her own life has been informed by trauma in such a way that you could understand why she might want to play a role in kind of limiting the... Because this is a point at which, and again, I wasn't around for it, there was obviously a real moral panic around video nasties. You know, obviously through, you know, mouthpieces as the likes of uh, Mary Whitehouse, uh, there's a clip in the film, obviously, of, I think probably the most famous video nasty, which is Driller Killer. And the idea that public figures were concerned that people would just go back and watch the gory bits over and over and over. I mean, I grew up largely, and I, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, in Dubai. So I didn't have access to particularly gory horror. And at, the, and at that time, I wouldn't have been hugely interested in it. But I like how the film plays with the ideas of trauma and actually the fact that video nasties they're not a cause of violence they're a response to violence hmm. not sorry they're like a not even a symptom because a symptom applies in place something they are an outlet for violence that already exists as opposed to inspiring further violence the same thing that happened i guess it, my, my equivalent would be something like gta grand theft auto which is not the first time i'm going to mention it sorry not the last time i'm going to mention it in this pod where people were really worried that it was going to cause copycat crime because it was such popular games. I don't know whether it was a Columbine connection or it was essentially proven to be unproven or unprovable, which is not to say that the panic's gone away. I thought this was a really well-made film. It reminded me a bit of, as I'm sure it's meant to, there's an opening sequence that's, a, that's very much the Evil Dead, really wonderful use of, uh, of, sort of neon. The ensemble cast is great. The film reminded me to that degree a bit of like the Love Witch, one of those films where everything is just lovingly done and all the actors just fit. Neve Algar really fits the period, but it's also got like Nicholas Burns, Vincent Frank. I'm just reading, the, basically reading the names of Wikipedia now. Also, Adrian Schiller. Adrian Schiller was the, with those wonderful cheekbones. And Michael Smiley, who having recently watched a uh, new signature release called uh, The Toll, uh, which I think is still under embargo, reminds me of what a versatile actor he is. The balance that he can strike between comedic and menacing. Yeah. And it, as you say, it, it is kind of a descent into fantasy and paranoia based on this kind of this grounding trauma. I really enjoyed it. I agree with what you said there. It's, this is an interesting one, this, because I was a kid during the 80s. And I really remember the video Nazi scandal. And I remember it because I would have been about nine at the time, but had seen some films that were then going to be banned. So I'd seen The Burning because my auntie had rented it when she was babysitting me one night. And that was a formative movie in terms of the Tom Savini effects. And just watching this mayhem was like, oh, wow, are there any other films like this? My parents weren't too happy that I'd seen it. But yeah, there was a panic, and it was a panic that was fueled by the Conservative Party, who just saw this as like an easy win for them getting tough on crime, rather than actually it doing anything 
practical about it. They said, no, it all comes from these movies. These movies are corrupting the young. So therefore, we're going to ban these movies and that's going to solve the issue, which of course is just complete nonsense. But there was a... I didn't... Wait a second, you telling me they didn't solve crime? I'm saying, yeah, that's right, yeah. Surprisingly, they didn't solve crime. But there was an MP called Graham Bright, and he created the Bright Bill, which then became the Video Recordings Act, which meant that all films had to go through the BBFC for home viewing as well as for cinema. Because up until that point, films were being cut for cinema, but were being released uncut at home on video. So The Evil Dead's a good example of that. But now everything had to go through the BBFC, and I think they had a few years to get everything viewed. Uh, but Graham Bright said that these films can corrupt and deprave they can also corrupt and deprave your pets as well this is just some of the nonsense that was coming out oh, this time. Pet. yeah he said they'd have like a deleterious influence on dogs so yeah that's the kind of level of research they were putting into this sort of thing did the press dismissively respond to this at any point as the bright idea <laughs> or a bright idea no they all thought it was a very very bright idea this was just an easy campaign to get behind because it has to be said, a lot of the films that were released had footage in them that was not typical of horror films that had been released up until that point. They were very violent, they were very strong, and even though some of the effects now look quite hokey, it's weird to think at the time that they didn't. So The Evil Dead, which was cut video when it was finally released in the late 80s, when you go back and watch The Evil Dead now, and it's like, well, this is all plasticine. It's like a horror version of Wallace and Gromit. But at the time, it was like, no, we can't allow this stuff through. So it just shows how sophisticated I think we've become in terms of processing and understanding imagery. And every single tabloid just jumped on the bandwagon, as they would do 10 years later with the Jamie Bolger case as well, when they were saying this was all to do with videos as well. And then suddenly I couldn't find the burning in the video shop and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre had gone and The Evil Dead had gone. And it's like, all oh, right, so all the horror films have been taken away. I'm a bit annoyed about that because I wanted to watch them. I about to say, and that, and that never influenced your future life decisions in any way. No, that's right. Well, that's, that's a really good point because it's like if you ban something, then it becomes the forbidden fruit that you have to taste. And the irony is that a lot of the films that were officially banned and that you could go to prison for renting to somebody, and if somebody you know, watched it, then I think they could be liable for prosecution as well. A lot of these films are just completely boring rubbish and one of the things that would happen when you'd work your way through i think there were 78 films that were officially banned there's a few absolute gems in there so there's a couple of argentos there's inferno and tenebrae they're both absolutely brilliant possessions in there as well wasn't a clockwork orange no 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 that was um stanley kubrick he withdrew that film from circulation in the uk because he and his family got death threats and he was a director that pulled his own film Oh, God. <laughs> but there are also just some real trash movies that are so boring. And you work through them and, and you kind of think all these are going to be great. And it's like, I just can't understand how some of these got withdrawn because they're so innocuous. And then there'd be other things that weren't banned. The Sam Fuller war film, The Big Red One, was seized off of shelves because they thought it was a porn film, which shows the level of knowledge that the police had. Because it was policemen who were just going in and taking these films and they had no idea what they were dealing with. But it was better to be just watching videos than going out and like you know, having to deal with violent criminals. So I think it was like quite a cushy gig for them. And there was The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, the Dolly Parton film, that was also withdrawn for a while because they thought it was a porn film. So yeah, it's just a complete mess. Anyway, that's a very, very long bit of history at the time. Also, of course, there was the minor strike and the IRA and 
social services were failing. So there's a lot of things where there was a lot to try and distract the public from. And Video Nasties was just a very, very good scapegoat. So when I watched this film, and I'm quite lucky that I've seen it twice, I thought that it would be more about the time and the history. And what it actually is, is a very subjective character study of the main character and the trauma that she's dealing with. So when I first watched it, it was like, I was a bit bemused because it wasn't giving me what I thought it was going to be. So I'm not entirely sure what, what I made of that. But then I thought, well, I have to see it again. And I was lucky enough to see it again. And on a second viewing, it was like when I had put all of the baggage of what I thought it was going to be to one side, it was like, oh, yeah, this is just one of the best films of the year, isn't it? Okay, fine. Yeah, there are some films where it pays to watch them twice, particularly if it's a genre that you love. It was just really accomplished. It had a real understanding, I think, of the time, but it's all in the background. And that's what I appreciated more on a second viewing, that she's so wrapped up, so Enid is so wrapped up in a trauma that she's not really aware of what's on the news and what's on the news is all about the social unrest and upheaval and problems that people are dealing with whereas she's much more focused on this mystery that she's trying to solve and then she sees a film that she thinks holds the answer on a second viewing i became much more interested in her character well, I'm just going to say that I appreciated the film on first viewing, so I'm not saying that makes one of us a better critic, but... Yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm just going to put it out there. But there are so many good things in this film, and one of the things is that the opening credits is a montage of clips from actual video nasties, so films like The Driller Killer and Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, and it includes the clips that would have got them banned. And Censor is a 15 which is like, well, we have come quite a long way. And also, that I think one of the reasons why I really responded to the film on that second viewing is because in its basic framework, it's very similar to St. Maud, mm. which is a film I love. And it's about you know, someone who's trying to atone for what they see as a past wrong, but their guilt overwhelms them and really begins to affect their grasp on reality. And like St. Maud, Censor is like comedy, and it's um, one of the nice things about it is at the time, the worry was that people would not be able to distinguish reality from fantasy after seeing these films and start acting out what they'd seen. But it's only really the MPs and the BBFC who actually thought that way. So it's funny that, uh, yes, we have a character who is so obsessed with protecting people from these horror films that as the film goes on, her life begins to take on the look of a horror film. And you have the red gels and the blue gels and the pink gels that are very reminiscent of Italian giallo films from the 60s and 70s. So, yeah, I thought that Bailey Bond, the director, she knew her genre very well, I thought. It also goes into folk horror, not to spoil anything, but there's like a sequence that's kind of folk horror. There are things in the woods that recall films such as The Blood on Satan's Claw yeah. and old episodes of Hammer House of Horror. There was one shot in particular that made me really think of The Blood on Satan's Claw. And I would imagine that's towards the end, right? Yes. Yeah, another thing that I realised about it was that this is a film that takes place in darkness so it's a very nocturnal movie so it's either set in offices with no windows or screening rooms or trains in tunnels or it's at night in subways and you only really get sunshine towards the end of the film and there's a very ironic use of it there so there's just a lot of things to admire in this film there's uh enid's male colleague sanderson who's played by nicholas burns and i like how uh, in basically he's very much almost kind of anti-censorship, and he defends all the video nasties. You know, he, he kind of goes off on this 
heightened intellectual spiel about it being in there. You know, this is in the grand tradition of the Cyclops from the Odyssey or Gloucester in King Lear or Unshian Andalou. And how, depending on what they're looking at, that can be equally fatuous as we should ban everything. Because as you say, some of it was just tat. But that's the thing is that the argument that's like, well, no one's going to miss this. So therefore we should just take it off the shelves because it's tat. And it's like, well, you can't ban something for being shit. And also with that, I think there's also a touch of the academic there because you're always tempted to take something that is trash cinema and link it back to the extremities of the past, like the Grand Guignol or Shakespeare. And I think Enid has a very good line when she says, well, you lost the argument when you went to Shakespeare, which did make me chuckle. But Nicholas Burns, I think, is an example of the fact that a lot of the censors of the time didn't agree with the then head of the BBFC, James Furman. He was incredibly censorious. And a lot of the censors were saying, we just think that you're taking this too far. But James Furman, there's a very good book called Censored by Tom Dew Matthews that was written, I think, in the early 90s. And it talks all about the video Nasty's age. And it says that James Furman was often attacked by the other censors or examiners, as they're now called, for the cuts that he was making to films or saying things like, we shouldn't be seeing nunchucks in movies, and he outlawed any sight of a nunchuck in a film for 20 years. Why? Because he said that kids would copy it and would get broom handles and put chain between it and make their own ones and injure themselves. One of the examiners said, there is no evidence to suggest that that's happened. He said, that shows how effective our policy is. So that's the kind of guy that he was. Oh, okay. Uh, he was one of those good evidence-based guys. <laughs> but he had two senior examiners who were always there to back him up. And the other examiners would refer to them as the three blind mice. Mm. So, yeah, so I thought that Nicholas Burns was kind of a composite of those examiners who actually said, no, we are overreacting here and we are bowing to public pressure when there's not a danger here. But also, to your point, thought was really interesting is that there is the point that the film kind of says well a lot of these movies do just focus on women being raped and cut up and there's no getting around the fact that you watch these films and the sexism of the time means that these films are now just hopelessly dated when you watch them in their attitudes towards women well there's a really good line when Enid's talking to the uh, producer played by Michael Smiley where she says something along the lines of I'm not sure I like the idea of being raped and cut into pieces on the big screen, to which his retort is, no, but I'm sure the public would love it. Yeah, that's right. That seems like a very, very plausible exchange from that time. Yeah, so it was one of those. I thought that it got in a lot of the arguments around the video nasty in a very subtle and quite canny way. So, yeah, it really was one of those that glad I watched it again because it really went up in my estimation. Wait a second. Did that mean they censored Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Yes, they did. They oh, censored it, God. including the scenes where whoever it is with the nunchucks actually had a string of sausages. They were taken out because they were mistaken for sausages. Um, sorry, for nunchucks. It's just encouraging that everybody was paying attention. The inconsistency of it is that Top of the Pops would then show a music video from the Ninja Turtles film that had uncut shots of nunchucks being used in it. And it's like, okay, so that's allowed through because the BBFC are not controlling what goes out on top of the pops. And it probably was a mistake, but there wasn't a spate of nunchuck hittings or beatings or anything after that. It just, yes, a lot of it was just the personal how, opinion. How about sausage-related beating? No, that doesn't stand. Okay, I, I retract my question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this would have probably got an 18 at the time, and it might have had a couple of cuts, but wouldn't have been banned. But the fact that it's a 15 now just, yeah, really does make me chuckle. There was one thing that uh, the nerd in me thought, oh, not sure about that. So 
It's set in 1985, but the VCR that Enid uses is a front loader with a digital display. And I don't think those videos were around then. I think it was top loaders with an analog counter. So yeah, that was one thing I thought, oh, <laughs> the nerd in me has just been taken out of this movie. Mm. There's another point as well, the censor, the title. I thought, well, is this one of those clever play on words where it could also be heard as sense her? Okay. Because Enid is looking for her sister. And I wonder if that was a play there or if it's just me just being the academic and reading way too much into it. It's entirely possible. So yes, you are her male colleague <laughs> who is... Uh, no, actually, that's, that's untrue and unfair on multiple levels, not least of which this is a very good film deserving of further analysis. I don't mind being Nicholas Burns. <laughs> thought he was very good in the film. The scenes with her parents are very good as well. Just how sad and strained and kind of... They had a polite relationship. So Enid has a polite relationship with her parents because of what's happened in the past and she can't get past that. Because that's Claire Holman and uh, Andrew Havill, isn't it? Andrew Havill has those amazing, kind, sad eyes. He does, but I'd also say the same for Claire Holman. I think they were both yeah. cast because they have very kind and compassionate faces. Um, and Nim Alger, as Enid, just has a very, very stern expression. So she looks quite different to her parents because they've gone one way after this thing that happened in the past and she's gone the other. That was very strong as well. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what this does and how it plays with horror fans. I thought that your comparison to the Barbarian Sound Studio was really apt because that was a film that was called to mind when I was watching it as well. And that's a film that is not necessarily a movie that horror fans would like, even though it's about horror films. I think this might be a film that leaves some horror fans a bit bemused. If that is the case, then I would just strongly urge them to go back and watch it again. Yeah, this is my... I haven't seen a lot of horror films this year, apart from one that we're, I'm sure we're about to talk to about in the non-too-distant future. I'd need to go through and do an inventory of the horror films I've seen this year, but it's at the minute I can't think of another one that, that top censor. Yeah, nothing comes to mind. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this place is in my top ten of the year. If it's not in the top ten, then it means that there are some really, really good movies to come. And I also want to see Nasty, which was a short film that Bailey Bond, the director, made before this that is about, I think it's about a lad whose father disappears and he becomes obsessed with this horror film. So it seems as if there's some connective tissue there to this film. So it will be interesting to see that movie too, um, or to see that short. So hopefully they stick it on the Blu-ray. So this is definitely going to be a Blu-ray purchase then? Oh yes, yes I think so. I think if it could come out in like a lovely steelbook so that I could have the steelbook of St. Maud and the steelbook of this, then that would be great. (laughs) And at some point we'll sit down and do a double bill of them. Yes. Actually, one more thing about this is that this was shot on film, which I thought was really interesting. For a movie that really understands the look of VHS, there are some scenes when it begins to blur between reality and fantasy, where you get that horrible look of VHS with the tearing, the lines on the screen, and the wobbly colours and the wobbly tracking. So I thought it was quite ironic that it was actually shot on film. Yeah, and when it flashes between the sort of what seems to be the fantasy and what seems to be the reality, it's very unsettling. Hmm. Yes, that really well. And one more thing, Kim Newman is an exec producer on this, and Kim Newman is one of the great writers about cinema. He also writes very good horror novels as well. So shall we move on to Shadow in the Cloud? Yes, let's find out what their synopsis is, according to the ever-reliable IMDb. Shall I do do this one? And if so, shall I do my BBC radio announcer voice? 
that is just not necessarily good, but we can position it as a recurring gag. Yes, let's do that until Ross not to. A female World War II pilot traveling with top-secret documents on a B-17 flying fortress encounters an evil presence on board the flight. <laughs> Threatens to veer into Bane, but pulls it back. And, um, yes, that was very well done. And yeah, that's the story, isn't it? Chloe Grace Moretz is the female pilot, Maud, and yeah, she has to hop a ride on a plane that promises to be a milk run. So they're just going to be delivering some equipment, but uh, then lots of obstacles are thrown in their way. And she has something very important and very, very top secret that she's having to transport on this plane as well. Yes. What sort of peril will this plucky young lady encounter in the skies? <laughs> that one definitely went towards Bane at the end. That definitely, I mean. It's good though. So I saw this one at the Toronto Film Festival last year. They had a virtual library and I was doing some screenings for that. Yeah, I watched this movie and it was like, okay, can we get a vaccine ready? Because I really want to see this with an audience because just watching it on my computer, I just had such a blast and was just howling with laughter at how audacious this movie was and just how much I was loving it. Well, you were talking about that off the back of Tiff and making me very jealous. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I, I did tell you. Oh my God, I've, I've seen this film called Shadow in the Cloud and it's amazing. Yeah, that's right. So it's actually gone to Amazon Prime as an Amazon original. So it's bypassed the cinema, which is good and bad. It's good that it's out there and people can watch it because I think it's one of the best films of the year. It's bad that you can't see it on a big screen, but that's just the way of the world we live in now. There are going to be a lot of great films that you have already and are going to, in the future, not get their outing on the big screen. But I watched it again yesterday, and I just love this movie. It just understands its genre so well. So it's it's written and directed by Roseanne Liang, and it's her second film. I think she made a film in 2011. And other than that, she works in TV a lot. And it's like a John Carpenter film and a Joe Dante film and a George Miller film, just all mixed into one. But it understands its sci-fi credentials very well. It's it's a B-movie, or it understands why people love B-movies. But like B-movies, it can also smuggle in some themes as well to go along with all the mayhem and all the action. And this one is, it's a tale of female empowerment and it's got some very, very broad strokes feminism in there. It's just so well done. Chloe Grace Moretz is... This is the kind of performance that should be up for awards, but the film is just too broad to ever be in with a shout, which is a shame. But I just, oh, just thought this was so clever. What did you think of it? I don't think I loved it quite as much as you did. I did really like it. I think it's a, I do think it's a really clever idea of positioning the female lead on board this plane with a bunch of kind of uh, American and Anzac um, airmen, none of whom want her to be there and all of whom are, to one degree or another, either quietly dismissive or openly misogynistic. Is it a spoiler to relate this to that Twilight Zone episode that clearly had some inspiration on it? I don't think so. I think there's uh, yeah, there's an episode of uh, The Twilight Zone, which is also in Twilight Zone, the movie that's set on a plane, that this was clearly inspired by as well. It's, I think it's inspired by a lot of things, but that is a key influence on the movie. But it does some really good things with it. Yeah, Terror at 20,000 Feet, set during World War II, in which the person who's seeing the gremlin is being ignored because they're a woman. That's right. The way that that the film is structured is really interesting, because for the first 45 minutes or so, Maud is in the belly gun, 
So she's kind of been shoved to the bottom of the plane. She's in the tiny ball that you sit in under the plane with the gun. And it kind of plays out almost like a radio play because it's just her and she hears the other men talking. And I was thinking this is something that could be done as a radio play. Um, I'd actually forgotten from that first viewing just how openly misogynistic the other pilots are at the beginning of the... Oh, yeah, they suck. Because I recommended to regular contributor Ian Bird that he watch it with his 12-year-old, and it's like, oh, i actually forgotten there was this quite harsh and sexually aggressive exchange of what they would like to do with Maud. And it's like, oh, I'd actually forgotten that bit. So, yeah, she is having to fight an uphill battle, one of them being, I'm seeing something very weird on the wing of this plane, and it's just being dismissed as she just isn't used to being that high up, even though she's a pilot herself. And then the way it kind of escalates that, so the other men start, you start to hear that there's something strange going on in other parts of the plane and that the other airmen are seeing it is just, I just thought it was just so well paced and just so well structured, this film. And then when it turns into action, it just shoots for the moon. And I just think that the action in this film is the reason why Marvel have to be much cleverer in who they choose to make their films. Because you've got Roseanne Liang here. It's like, uh, excuse me, there is nothing in Black Widow that compares to any of this movie in terms of the action. The action in this film is deliriously exciting and massively over the top, but it's made by someone who knows exactly how far she can take something before it just becomes so ridiculous it loses the audience. And she just rides that line so that you are always entertained by just how fantastic the action is in this movie. And also, it's just, it's just so exciting watching it. Yeah, it is, it's pretty delirious and incredibly mobile camera. There is that action scene, obviously, where they flip the, the axes. Yeah, I really did enjoy this. It seems a shame to dwell on it, but we are going to need to touch on... Max Landis. Yes. Yes, we are. But before we do that, yes, that scene where they flip the axis is part of a six-minute sequence that I think is going to be the best six minutes of action cinema that I see this year. It certainly is up to this point. And I watched Fast 9 recently. I rented that. And it's like, while it was better than I thought it would be, because I think my expectations were so low, again, the action is like, yeah, this is... Some of the action was quite good, but there was nothing to compare to this movie. And this movie was made on a budget. This is There's a reason why she's in the belly gun for the first half of the film. It's because, well, they have to save their money for this massive half-hour ending where the action just escalates and escalates and escalates. So therefore, they haven't got the money hose to wash all of their problems away like something like Fast 9 has. Still, the action in this is just so much better than anything there. Just the way that Roseanne Liang knows how to shoot a confined space to always keep it interesting. And Chloe Grace Moretz just gives such an expressive performance in this really small space. It's like, oh, bravo, bravo. Unfortunately, it was written co-written by Max Landis. Do you want to go into why he's a troublesome person? Max Landis, screenwriter and son of the entirely unproblematic John Landis, (laughs) is best case, and this is something that he doesn't hugely even particularly challenge, an utter creep who has emotionally abused a number of women with whom he's been in or not been in relationships and is currently under investigation or was under investigation for sexual assault. Yeah, so it's a real shame that this film, which does so much to position a really well-written and strongly played female character 
within a genre that is typically male, even today, that it has that association with Max Landis. Apparently, he was removed from the project very early on, and he was going to be a producer on the film, but he was removed from the project before that could take effect. It was also said that his original draft was heavily rewritten by Roseanne Liang, and they're both billed as screenwriters in this film. He reportedly has said that he's seen the film and it's 90 to 95% what he wrote. So never missing the opportunity to be a gentleman. It will be interesting to read his original draft. And look, it's, people can write good things and still be arseholes. It's just the, yeah, that association is like, mm, it, it doesn't spoil the film, but it's just unfortunate that Max Landis had to get his grubby paws on this. Yeah, it, it's one of those things that you kind of have to mention. Yeah, that's right. Not to detract from any of the talented, largely female crew, and uh, and of course the female lead. Yeah, but the whole cast are great, right? I mean, they give really good voice yeah. performances, yeah. and again, they look like they belong in that period. Because my immediate assumption that you were either talking about uh, Nick Robinson, who, who's the young guy who uh, is slightly more sympathetic, or Callan Mulvey, the actor that you will recognise from everything, who has cheekbones and is evil. Does he play the captain? Yes. I thought in some shots he looked a bit like Dylan McDermott. So what's he been in then? A whole bunch of superhero films. He's in uh, Captain America Winter Soldier. He's in Avengers Endgame. He's one of the lesser villains in Batman v Superman. Right, so he's a prominently placed henchman then in these films. Yes. I've also just randomly learned by looking at his Wikipedia page. He's blind in his left eye, having been involved in a serious car accident in 2003. All right. He's partially sighted and is capable of doing great action scenes, going back to our Bette Noir Highlander with Christopher Lambert being essentially blind without his glasses and yet able to perform daring stunts. And it's like, and here I am, a minus 2.5 and a minus 1 bouncing, like bumping into walls. That's right. I'm dyspraxic when it comes to doing anything more physical than walking upstairs. And I could blame that on my eyesight, but it wouldn't be true. There's another point about this that I thought was very, very clever, and it's kind of there if you want it. It's there for the film theorists, but it just looks cool as well, is that the gremlin has very phallic weapons. He has these claws that are clearly supposed to be very, very phallic. That's, uh, that's actually the title of a beat poem I've written. <laughs> phallic claws. The gremlin has very phallic weapons. Oh, right. Well, I can't wait to hear that. The monster effects are really good in this as well. I think they were done by Weta, so that would explain why. Watch Shadow in the Cloud. I think it comes in at about 78 minutes without end credits, although you do want to watch the end credits because, one, they have a great song that plays the movie out, and, two, it has archive footage that actually is quite moving. It's just so well judged, this film. It's quick and it's snappy, and there's just not a dull moment in it, and it's kind of everything that you want from action cinema. And, to be honest, when you go to the cinema, you're not always promised it by some of the bigger films that you're going to see so yeah i would say watch this one and then tell your friends to watch it too the other thing sorry just one more thing speaking of the toxic elements that we've been talking about this is 4.8 on the imdb ouch i can only think that that has been some toxic voting from men annoyed that there is a female-led action movie the same way that a lot of blokes got annoyed that Mad Max's film was stolen by a woman in Mad Max Fury Road, and it was more about Furiosa, or that there was a female Ghostbuster film, because there is no fucking way that this film is 4.8. It's just ridiculous. It's like, that has to be 
negative voting just because of who is playing the lead. <laughs> what a world. But Shadow of the Cloud is very good. So yeah, that's two for two on our reviews today. It is. So I think now you've got a film to tell us about. And can we make it three for three? Um, we can make it two and a half. <laughs> Go on then. The, film, the other film that we're going to be talking about today is Free Guy. Which was delayed because of COVID, is that right? I saw trailers for this last year. Yes, it was delayed due to COVID and uh, was released last week, I think. <laughs> delayed at roughly, I think, the same time and now set for release somewhat later. Death on the Nile is now due out in, I think, April 2022. Wow, I hadn't heard that. So actually, while we're on our Max Landis, oh, there's a problem with the film. Death on the Nile has an even bigger problem with the film, right? The fact that Army Hammer is kind of the de facto lead in it and he is currently i think under investigation over rape charges is that right yes um full-on dropped by his agent broken up with his partner and having a criminal investigation against him some really horrible charges laid against him and obviously fox sorry now disney not that yeah this isn't the primary concern in this in this but since we are a film podcast yeah must be uh kind of scrabbling to find what to do with the big detective ensemble film in which Army Hammer is a core part of the uh, of the cast, of the ensemble. Yeah, it's like, if it's coming out next April, are they reshooting it? Or they could just stick it on Disney Plus now and say, right, just put it out there and let's just not give it any kind of fanfare. But if it's being released next year, then it's like, well, are they trying to reshoot parts of this? I don't know. I have no idea. It's not even as simple as what they did with uh, Kevin Spacey and all the money in the world replacing with Christopher Plummer because he is in, because Army Hammer, you know, I know the source material reasonably well, is in big ensemble scenes. I mean, they could do a, when they removed uh, Chris D'Elia from Army of the Dead and replaced him with Tignataro. But again, their character, the pilot, doesn't interact with many people directly. As in, like, there will be scenes in Death on the Nile where uh, Army Hammer's character has to kiss people. And that's why I'm thinking, are they reshooting it? But then it's like, if they're reshooting it and doing really invasive surgery on the film, then they are presumably then getting back other cast members. It's like, well, this is all going to cost a huge amount of money. How much money do you want to throw at this film, which is only going to make a certain amount of money even in the before times and now is not going to do 100 million in the States by any chalk. So, well, maybe they're not. Maybe they're not actually shooting it. They're just thinking... By next April, things will be so back to normal that the older generation for whom this film is most going to appeal are going to be willing to go back to cinemas again and watch Army Hammer. (laughs) Yeah. I think we'll have to keep an eye on this one to see how it unfolds. Yeah. (laughs) There are some times when it's like, that's the only response to just how disappointing things can be. Yeah. (laughs) But on a nicer note, Free Guy. Tell us about that. Free Guy is about a guy named Guy who uh, who works at a bank in Free City. And it's very, he's initially very Emmett from the Lego movie. He's played by, in this case, by Ryan Reynolds. He's incredibly upbeat and chipper and loves his job and loves the cup of coffee he gets every morning and loves his best mate who's a uh, who's a guard at the bank, who buddy who's played by Lil Ray Howery. But there's something missing from his life. He's looking for the love of his life. And then one day he bumps into the female character played by Jodie Comer and is swept off his feet and into the realisation that actually the whole world around them is part of a sort of Grand Theft Auto style video game 
open world video game, which is, you know, these backgrounded acts of terrific mayhem. And essentially, he decides he's going to be a good guy. Everybody else is running around killing people, robbing banks, and he decides that he's going to kind of play the game his own way. And there's definitely a touch of kind of the matrix to that, though red pill, that, you know, the fact taking the red pill is now means something completely different in our culture. But it's a really nice, lightly played, charming film. Ryan Reynolds is incredibly endearing, as he usually is. He and Jodie Comer, who plays Millie, a.k.a. Molotov Girl, they've got good chemistry. The action's fun. I like how it's not indebted to any particular game. I mean, I'm not a massive gamer by any means. I mean, there are actual cameo appearance from famous gamers and streamers, one or two of whom, despite being completely out of that, I actually recognised. Uh, I like the fact that yeah, it's not based on any particular IP until it gets to a certain point at the end, and then it's like, oh, yeah, Fox is owned by Disney now. It leads into it mega hard for about a minute and a half, and it's really off-putting. Space Jam Hard? Yes, Space Jam Hard. Wow, okay. Pretty managed to cram all of that into 90 seconds, which must be quite hard to digest if it's trying to squeeze all that IP promotion into a condensed amount of time. Oh, yeah. That's the only point where it goes full-on Ready Player One. And also, sadly, um, it's probably the only thing that I've seen Taika Waititi in and not liked him. Why is that? Well, he's the kind of villain of the piece. He's the Antoine, who's the CEO of Tsunami Games, which is clearly meant to be a riff on Blizzard, who are obviously going through their own issues at the moment. I don't know if you've... No, what's, what's happened there? Essentially, they're being investigated for basically mistreating staff. Uh, I, I, there, there's, there's a lot of stuff online, and it's just very, very toxic. I don't want to devote any more of this particular episode to really more horrible, toxic things that are going on in the world. But yeah. So it's workplace bullying, basically. They've just been accused of encouraging that culture. Yes, I think that's the extent of it. And obviously the gaming industry is always gets embroiled in this sort of thing a lot due to crunch time and due to just hardworking people who love the industry being taken advantage of. So crunch time being that time when you're not allowed to go home or sleep because they have to meet a deadline to release a game. Is that right? Yeah, usually uh, in the process of releasing games that I absolutely love, like Cyberpunk 2077, which I then always feel guilty about purchasing because lots of people have not seen their families for six months and potentially ruined their health, their, their, their mental health uh, in order to get this out there. So it's, it's all good stuff. Yeah, the entertainment industry does seem to be just built on the back of exploitation. But also, just to keep it dark for... One more minute. You said that take the red pill now has a horrible connotation in our culture. So it used to be the Matrix when you would take the pill and then you would see what the world is really like. So what's it now? It's now basically when you become a right-wing misogynistic conspiracy theorist. Okay, so... They've adopted that as their... Yeah, that is... (laughs) How disappointing. You would like them to leave it alone and you would think the fact that the Matrix is now directed by two trans women would be enough for them to leave it alone because of course they're not going to agree with that but it's like oh yeah and, and the Wachowskis have told people to fuck off on Twitter yeah I think it just shows the power of great art it can appeal to lots of different people some people you like and some people who you, you wish would not watch it and enjoy it that's interesting so Ryan Reynolds he isn't being controlled by anyone he is just is he just like one of those he's an NPC yes and what does that stand for a non-player character. I'm assuming no knowledge from our audience around gaming, because I have none myself. 
yeah, so he realizes he's just one of the other characters that you see milling about when you're playing a game and he becomes self-aware. Yes. So yeah, that sounds like quite good fun. Is it fun? And it, it, is, it is fun. And it plays with sort of different gaming trope, health packs, etc. And yeah, and it keeps things breezy. It's got some emotional beats in there. You know, mileage may vary. I liked it. The Disney stuff completely took me out of it. Taika Waititi's character in it is meant to be obnoxious, and he is. I'm sure he probably improv a fair bit of his dialogue. I didn't quite understand why they got Taika Waititi to do that role, other than Taika Waititi, he's brilliant, and then he's given a very limited role. Yeah, it was disappointing. But is it one of those things where, do you think it's similar to Don Cheadle being the big bad in Space Jam? There's algae rhythm. Ugh. The fact that we have an underwritten bad guy here, we need to get a great actor in to make it halfway work. Yeah, and it's probably one of those things that he, he is just an irredeemable asshole as a character. And I'm sure it's probably based entirely on real life. They are probably they can point at a dozen people and say, This is direct inspiration for these for this type of guy. But it's also just watching a film and not finding Taika Watiti endearing or crucially particularly funny wasn't great. Yeah, I have to admit, I didn't find him endearing as Hitler in Jojo Rabbit, but I did think that it was well-played black comedy. I didn't find Jojo Rabbit hugely funny, but yeah, so yeah, there's a, we pitch things differently with black comedy. But Free Guy, it's not a black comedy, it's a very, very light comedy, and it's worth a look. It's very charming, I'm sure it'll be on Disney Plus before too long. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see when it is, because I don't think it's been released to premium rent, has it, or has it? Uh, no, it hasn't. That's interesting, that, because, yeah, that's, uh, you kind of think they would have done a day and date with it. But then I heard that after the Suicide Squad made $25 million in its opening weekend in the States, Warner Brothers are no longer going to put every single film onto HBO Max at the same time, because they realise that giving it away for free to subscribers, of whom there are millions, might impact the box office a little bit. Yes, it will be interesting to see, by the end of this year, how many really big films are having day-in-day TVOD and SVOD releases? Because I think that, well, in this country, if COVID remains kind of contained enough to the point where it's not going to destroy the NHS, then it could be that we start seeing bigger windows. In the States, it seems as if the Delta variant is just completely running away with the entire country, but the red states in particular. So it will be interesting to see what films Warners chooses not to put on HBO Max the same days it gets released in cinemas. You think in June, right? You don't think June's going to be available on TV the same time as it gets released at the cinema. Yeah, I say June is one of those that I definitely, definitely want to see in the cinema because for some some reason, a space opera based on the book by Frank Herbert, directed by Denis Villeneuve, feels like it might, that might be an IMAX trip. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Provided we're not back in lockdown by then kind of remaining cautiously optimistic. I know that it's the summer, but then again, it's been an up and down summer. So people haven't been out the whole time. Lots of people have been indoors and it hasn't seemed to spike infections to the point where it's going to threaten to topple the NHS. But yeah, autumn and winter is a completely different ballgame. So we'll just have to see how that goes. But overall, with Free Guy, you would recommend it? Yes, I would. Well, on that slightly qualified note of optimism (laughs) what are we going to be talking about next next will be some combination of well tonight i have the joy i'm going straight from this to the cinema to see snake eyes 
Why? Because I booked it a while ago and didn't cancel my tickets. And I've missed a couple of Odeon screenings recently on the Limitless card, and they're getting pissy with me. Oh, do they do that? Do you get an email telling off? Yeah. What does it say? You've missed this screening. You should cancel your tickets. And it's like, yes, but you have to cancel your tickets, I think, outside of 24 hours. And I've, these have just ended up being in situations where I couldn't go and see the film. And I, I'm going to see it at Odin Surrey Keys, which, so it's not like it was packed out. Yes. <laughs> Odin Surrey Keys, where on the day of opening, I went to see Jungle Cruise and was the only one in the cinema. That's, yes, indeed. I can't see them being totally packed out for a members-only screening. But there's also um, the new Nicolas Cage film, Pig. There's Demonic, as you say, uh, which is going to be playing Fright Fest. On the 27th of August, there's Candyman. There's The Nest, a new long-awaited film by Sean Durkin, who made his directorial debut with Martha Marcy May Marlene. Then we're into Shang-Chi territory. That's why I reckon it's, it's going to be Candyman, right? What, once more? Sorry. So I think it would be Candyman, maybe? Uh, just once more? <laughs> that was really well done. <sighs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to explain that one because that was so well done. People should just know why that was a great joke you just made. So it probably will be that. Yes, so it will be Candyman. Huzzah for that. Excellent. Okay, so shall we do plugs to finish? Yes. If you're so inclined, you can follow me on Twitter at Robert M. Wallace uh, or find my work... Uh, my work, Jesus. Find my occasional uh, writing at of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. You can call it your work, dearie. <laughs> it is a good body of work. No, Rob, this isn't my work. My work is something entirely different. Yes, that's right. Well, based on what we've been talking about, that now has terribly <laughs> troubling undercurrents. Remove it, remove it, remove it. That's far, far too grim. That's upsetting. I might just leave that in. That's fine. <laughs> okay, so... And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. If you want to read my writing, it is at electric-shadows.com. If you want to listen to our sister podcast, Another Time McLeod, where can they listen to that, Rob? Uh, if you'd like to listen to a podcast devoted to breaking down the wonderful Highlander, we're, um, you can follow us on Twitter at McLeodTime. And we're available probably where you listen to this. I mean, now I've got, I seem to have got the Apple podcast thing sorted out. So, yeah, um, we're currently a few episodes in. If you are a big Highlander fan, get in touch at who wants to pod forever at Gmail. We'd love to hear from you. And yeah, it's a big, silly Highlander pod. That is a great email address that you came up with for the Highlander podcast. <laughs> it was the backup title for the pod itself. But then I realized that given we're doing 72 episodes, we perhaps don't want to remind people constantly how long this has been going on for. <laughs> so, yes, but it's a very, very good one. And if you want to rate and review us, as in if you want to rate and review the Movie Rockcast, then you can do that wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you do, we thank you wholeheartedly. It helps the podcast and it's always much appreciated. Thank you very much for listening. And we will speak to you again very, very soon. Strap in. Yes, ma'am. 